Well, good morning. It's weird, New Year, and I sat on the wrong side. Yeah, I know, you did, but that's okay. But, but, well, I, I get a nice bonus this year, I guess, so that's good. Uh, all right, so let's, let's read from the book of Isaiah, and we'll be in chapter 56, uh, verses 1 through 8, and we will be reading through the, from the English Standard Version. Here's the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus, for thus the, says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who keep the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and I will make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Here ends the reading of God's word. Well, Happy New Year. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy to think that 2022 has come and gone already. Uh, we just had a wonderful time of sharing, but I thought I would say a few things too, just about the life of our church thinking back. Uh, I think we, we were blessed to support new church plants. We had a great first season of Roar Soccer at Lockmer Elementary. We worshiped in not one location, not two locations, but three locations, unless I'm forgetting one. We loaded trailers, we unloaded trailers, we set up chairs, we tore down chairs, we set up benches, all the rest. Um, I think many of us are still drying off from our groundbreaking ceremony. As we you know, get ready for this new facility, we celebrated new babies, we welcomed new, new members, and we mourned the loss of some dear friends. Now, it really was quite the year for our church family, and I want to thank you all for the work and efforts that you guys put in over this past year. Um, it does not go without being seen. We're very thankful for, for all of you. Now, I fully believe that God is doing great things here in our church, and I'm excited to see what he does in this coming year. 2022, the year of our Lord, was quite the year, and as we enter into 2023, I think all of us wonder what it's going to hold. Sure, we have plans, but everything could change in an instant for us. Uh, this coming year is full of mystery, despite the fact that our, we are meticulously planning every moment of it. Now, it's crazy, you've got to plan summer camping January 1st. But the sad thing is we don't even know what's going to happen later today, despite our best efforts. But we do know the one who is not surprised by what is ahead. We know the one who holds the whole world in his hands. And in Isaiah 56, God tells us a wonderful, concrete truth. And I did not mean to say that earlier, but 
Wow. Um, we're in for concrete truth about what God is going to do this coming year. In a year of mysteries and unknowns, God is going to gather people to himself and bring them into his everlasting house. We don't know what this coming year's hurricane season is going to be like, or how the economy will turn, or what global conflicts will take place. But we know that this year, God is going to save sinners. He will give sight to the blind, he will give hearing to the deaf, and he will raise the dead to life in the name of Lord Jesus. I think it's easy for us to look at the state of the world, see everything that bad that's going on, and just wonder, like, what is it you're doing? Like, Lord, why haven't you returned yet? But I think the answer for us is clear. That God's work here on earth is still not complete. It's not fully done yet. That God is still working. He's still transforming lives every day. And I want this to be an encouragement to us this morning as we minister to family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors, that there's still time and that no one is still too far gone. And that just because you have a friend that has not accepted Christ yet doesn't mean that there's no hope. I want to encourage us to keep praying, to keep ministering to these people because what we see in Scripture is that God is actively gathering people to himself every day. Not a gathering in the sense of, you know, God's harvesting corn stalks. You know, this isn't a farmer's almanac entry. But what we see in Isaiah 56 is that God is finding sinners who are in need of salvation, and he is bringing them to himself. So what I want to do this morning, I want to draw out three um, three aspects of the God's work when it comes to his gathering process. And what those three things are, the gathering of God is covenantal, it is boundary-breaking. You know, I'm Presbyterian, so I love my alliteration, so boundary-breaking. And it is complete. So first, we'll start with the gathering of the Lord's people is covenantal. So the covenants of God are very important to our church, as evidenced by the name Covenant Church. But I think there's probably some of you here this morning who are maybe unfamiliar with that word or concept of a covenant. Or maybe you are familiar with that term, but it's been a while, and you could just use a good refresher. We start with covenants because they are foundational in the Lord's gathering salific work. Now, in their simplest form, a covenant is a sort of contractual agreement in which there's two parties making some sort of agreement. These parties are binding themselves to each other. One side, they are saying they'll do X, and the other, they will say they are going to, they're agreeing to do, to do Y. And if one side says they break their bargain, they break their end of the agreement, the covenant states that consequences would follow, that a payment would be required. Now, one of the incredible things about the Bible and what we learned from it is that God made covenants with people that he had created. Now, think about that for a moment. 
the God who is the, the master and the sustainer of all things, has made agreements, has made binding covenants with people that he has created. People who are in no way his equals. People who he owes nothing to. And yet, God willingly made covenants with these people. This is a truth that's only, is incredibly unique to Christianity. Because other world religions would never imagine that a deity would stoop so low. That a deity would tie himself to bind himself to a non-deity in such a way. Now sure, we have Greek and Roman mythologies in which you know, gods often descended to earth and they interacted with humans, but they weren't for covenants. They were for selfish gains. The God of Christianity is so much different than that. So it's important then we ask, so what did these covenants that God made with his people entail? Well, verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 56 certainly have covenantal language in them. Starting in verse 1, if you're looking at it, it says that man's side of the agreement was to do a few things, to keep justice and to do or to practice righteousness. If we move on to verse 2, we see that they were to honor and keep the Sabbath, to keep it holy, and to keep himself slash his hand from doing any evil. And if man did these things, the passage says that he would be blessed. Examples of these blessings are alluded to further along in the passage. Now, verse 5 talks about how people, a blessing in me is, includes being given an everlasting name. And we'll spend a few t- moments later uh, talking about that in a little more detail. And then verse 7 says that man would be brought to the holy mountain of God, where he would be made joyful, where his sacrifices would be accepted. So that's man's side. That's his, his ex. He's supposed to do these things. And then for, for God's part of the covenant, and in, in return, he said that he would bring about salvation and deliverance. And he would be their God. And we see that sort of message all throughout the prophetic books, where God says, be my people, and I will be your God. But if you know your Bible at all, very rarely you'll know that the people of God, the people who should have known what God required of them, they didn't rarely turn for amiable. Very rarely was their behavior, their words, their actions, that of just behavior or righteous behavior. Scripture teaches us that oftentimes the Israelites lived in the exact same way as their pagan neighbors. For example, let's let's think for a moment um, of Israel during the reign of King Josiah, which we can read about in 2 Chronicles 34. In the lines of of Judah, or in the line of kings of Judah and Israel, there were very few good kings, but Josiah seems like he was one of the good ones. But leading up to his reign, the temple of the Lord, you know, the temple, had fallen into complete disarray. It was in such bad shape that Josiah ordered that the temple get restored and it be get all cleaned up. 
And in this restoration process, verse 14 of 2 Chronicles 34 tells us that they found the book of the law of the Lord. What, what do you mean you found, they found it? Well, that implies that they lost it. They lost the word of the Lord. They had lost the word of their covenant partner. Like, we can't miss how significant and how heartbreaking and evil that is, that they lost the word of God. These people were not trustworthy at all. They were not the kind of people that you want to agree to co-sign on a loan for. On paper, it makes no sense as to why God would willingly make a covenant with this people. Like we, like we look back and we're like, why would God do this? But I believe that the answer is, it's simple, but it's profound. Why did God do this? Why did God make covenants? It's because he loves his people. God is not naive. He did not just assume that once he made this agreement with his people, that he made this covenant, then, it's, then the people would get their acts together and there would be no issue at all. Smooth sailing. He's God. There's not a single moment in history that has happened, that is happening, or will happen that God doesn't know. I mean, thinking through the scriptures, too, in the covenantal history, he knew that Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that Noah, despite being saved in the ark from a worldwide flood, he knew that this guy would, would sin. He knew that Abraham would make many mistakes. You know, Abraham's, it's interesting, he made the same mistake twice of telling foreign rulers that his wife was a sister. Like, it's, it's a weird thing to do first time, but then the second time it's even weirder. But God knew that he would do that. God knew that Moses would struggle with insecurity. He knew that he would struggle with pride. God knew that David, the man who was called the man after God's own heart, would commit adultery with Bathsheba and then kill her husband Uriah. But despite knowing all of these things and more, God still willingly chose to bind himself to his people because of his great love for them. He called them his people while fully knowing that they would be unfaithful to him. God, through his covenant, said that even though his people would be disobedient and not uphold their end of the bargain, he would still remain faithful to them. So we ask ourselves, so why is this covenantal background important as we understand and think about God gathering people to himself. Like, why, why, does, why, why do we need that? Well, because when we think about the covenantal background, we realize that we learn more about the mind and the will of God. That we can learn that God works within the confines of his covenants to his people. God's not swayed by whims or frivolous desires like we so often are. What God does is he gathers individuals to himself according to the covenantal standards that he has ordained, not according to the, the capabilities or the worthiness of those whom he has called. The people who God made covenants with were messy, 
and broken people. But it was to these people that he said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. He told them that I will be your God and you will be my people. And it's these words that he says to us today. God calls us and he says, be my people. He welcomes us into covenant with him. It's a powerful thing. But when we consider, when we examine ourselves, we realize that we're just like the Israelites and wish we'll never be able to uphold the end of the agreements that we are called to. Because our lives are not marked by holiness. Instead, they're marked by sin, and they're marked by rebellion to God. Even on our most well-behaved days, we make more sin, we manage to sin more than we would like to admit. That's sometimes even why we have confession in our worship services, because that's not something we're quick to do on our own. We don't like to think about how we're not great people. But remember that God, this this covenant-making, this covenant-upholding God makes covenants with people because of his great love for them. And it's because of God's great love for those whom he has called that he came to earth, that he took on human likeness, that he lived a righteous and perfect life. All in order to die for us, to pay that covenantal punishment price that was required in the covenant he made with us. This Jesus, who is God himself, has died for you, and now he calls you to follow him. This week I just kept thinking about when Jesus is calling the disciples, especially by the water, you know, they're fishing, they're cleaning their nets, and Jesus says, follow me, and they do it. That's the same call that we are given today, that God is calling us and says to follow him. In order to experience the blessings of God, he calls us to be freed from the burdens of our sins, to have a purpose and direction in life, and to be some, someday physically see and hear the God who saves you. That's a theme that's been rolling through my head this past year is the fact that someday we will physically see and hear God. Like, man, how awesome does that sound? God calls you to be his people. What an amazing thing it is to be given a covenantal calling from the king of the universe. So this morning, I want to ask you, Have you ever considered the covenant of God? Have you ever thought about how the God of the universe has looked at you and willingly decided to make a covenant with you while fully knowing the depth of your sin and your unfaithfulness? Have you ever considered the great love of God and lifted up your hands Humbly asking him to receive you into his people, into his flock. If you've never asked God for deliverance in this way, 
Let today be the day of your salvation. This new year, God is going to save sinners. And what a way it would be to start the year by coming to Jesus on the first day of it. Then I want to ask those of you who are or who have answered the call of God. Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. I want to ask you, are you living as one who has been gathered? Does your life show evidence of caring that you are in in a covenantal agreement with God? Or are you living like the Israelites in Josiah's day? Meaning that the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord, has been is absent. It's been lost from your heart and your mind. I'm not a huge fan of New Year's resolutions. Uh, personally, as a, as a guy with very few flaws, I don't really see the need for it. However, imagine what would happen in our personal lives in the lives of our families, in our church, our community, if we all resolved to be people of the covenant, we would come back on January 1st of 2024 and we would hear story after story of how marriages had been strengthened, how parents would have parented like never before, We'd hear stories about how children and teenagers just grew in their faith immensely. They took ownership of it. We'd hear all these stories about people being converted and being gathered into the God's kingdom. And all of these stories would just perfectly demonstrate that God had been glorified this this past year. What an exciting thought. So I want to challenge us. Let's start writing down stories of God's faithfulness today. So we can come back next year and say, this is all that God has done as we lived as people of the covenant. So this passage, it tells us that God gathers people according to his covenant. But Isaiah 56 goes on to show us that the covenant was not meant for a single nation or a single people group. Yes, God made a covenant with Abraham, and God told Abraham that he would make him into a great nation with descendants like the sand on the seashore. And the Old Testament clearly shows that the Israelites were the people of God. But our passage this morning shows us that God's people were not simply made up of the people of Israel. Because God's covenant, God's blessing would extend to all the peoples of the world. So our second point this morning is the gathering of God breaks boundaries. One key example of where we can see this coming to fruition is through the Israelites' enslavement in the land of Egypt and the Exodus account. But before getting to the Exodus story, we need to step back a little bit and talk about Genesis 15. Genesis Genesis 15 talks about God's covenant with Abraham. I want to read verses 13 and 14 from Genesis 15. Know for certain that our offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. 
but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. It's a very interesting thing, because God is telling Abraham this, that he, his offspring will be sojourners or slaves in a land. He's telling them this, he's tell, God's telling Abraham in the midst of this great promise. He's like, yo, you're gonna make, I'm going to make your descendants as graze a seashore. By the way, your descendants are going to be enslaved. I'm not Abraham, but I would be a little confused by that if I heard that. It's like, God, I don't know. I like the first part of the covenant, but not so much the second. But sure enough, years later, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. And we read about that in the Exodus account. But if you know the Exodus account, you'll remember that God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. And Pharaoh says no. But after a series of 10 plagues, Pharaoh finally relented and God's people were able to leave Egypt. So why do we mention the Exodus story here when we're talking about Isaiah 56? Well, because when the Israelites left Egypt with all sorts of possessions and treasures, just like God had promised to Abraham in Genesis 15, they were not alone. Hear this from Exodus 12. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Sokoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. But a mixed multitude also went up with them. Who made up this multitude? These were not Israelites. These were foreigners. Men and women who had witnessed the power of God in Egypt. Who had seen the power of God displayed in the fact that he spared and he protected the Israelites during these plagues. These people said, The God of the Hebrews is different. He's greater than all of our wooden statues, and he is worth following. So we see even before the Israelites entered into the promised land, foreigners had been in the midst of the people of God. And in in Isaiah 56, Isaiah, in this prophetic book, through the divine inspiration of God, was made sure to include a section that was meant to encourage those who had been grafted into the people of God. And there's two different people groups that are highlighted in Isaiah 56. First, we have a general kind of foreigner category. Then we have one that kind of might make us feel a little funny, is eunuchs. So let's hit on both of those those quickly. Looking at verse 3 of Isaiah 56. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. We can hear the insecurities. We can hear the fear that is mentioned in the voice of this man or woman who is convinced that God is going to separate him or her from the people of God. And I'm sure that this fear has been fueled by those who are not foreigners. Those who kind of felt like, you know, the foreigners are the second-class people of God compared to the natural-born descendants of Abraham. I would argue that these kind of naysayers, they, were, they would have got along pretty great with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. However, it's very, very important to note that this foreigner that's referred to in verse, or chapter 56, verse 3, is not some disinterested person who is living in the midst of the Israelites. This foreigner has joined himself to the Lord. 
Verse 7 kind of gives us some details of what that looks like, what that meant. It means that he ministers to God, that he loves the name of the Lord, that he's the Lord's servant. He honors the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, and he holds fast to the covenant of God. This foreigner was living a life of obedience to God. And no one who turns joins himself or herself to God in this way will ever be turned away. It didn't matter if this person had formerly worshipped idols or had once been an enemy of Israel or if they couldn't recite the Torah by memory. The fact is that this person turned to God. They had rejected their former gods, their former lifestyles, and they had joined themselves to him. And they would never be separated from God again. That's the encouragement that's given to these people. Now, when, you read, when we read through this passage, the end of verse 7 probably sounded familiar to some of you. It said, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Now, the, the reason it's familiar to many of us is because this is what Jesus quoted when he was clearing out the temple. I believe that he said this in large part because the money changers and the animal salesmen and the people that were doing all this evil in the temple, they had set up shop in a place called the court of the Gentiles. This was the area of the temple where the non-Israelites were allowed to come and worship and gather. But it had become so unusable that they could not even enter into worship God. Jesus was furious because these were people trying to join themselves to the Lord, like what we read in verse 7. They were trying to worship God, and they, had been, they were unable to do it because of the mess in the temple. This just shows again how the love of God loves these people, how he cares for the, the foreigner in this case. So we have the foreigner reference, but then we also have this reference about the eunuchs. Now, there were different kinds of eunuchs that exist in those days, right? You had a few, or one type, they were, they were people who were born with a physical defect or ailment. And then others, they were forced to become so. It was very common in ancient times for kings to castrate some of their, these people to, or to make them feel like a non-threat, to subdue them, to pacify them. And they were often used to protect harems of, or of the kings, now, both types, though, people who had been born like that and others who had been forced to become one, would have dealt with immense amount of shame. They would have felt, struggled with depression. They would regularly have felt like they were broken, unfulfilled people. I think if we were to use the language of the passage, they would describe themselves as a dry tree. These men could never have children likely would never have a family of their own. They couldn't continue their family line. They would have felt like their family tree died with them and that they would just be forgotten. But what this text does, it gives us a note of encouragement to this hurting group. It teaches that eunuchs did not have to be defined by their brokenness, that their lives did not have to be destined for emptiness or hopelessness, 
Because those who held fast to the day of the Lord, who kept it holy, who did what pleased the Lord and held fast to his covenant, God said he would make a monument, a memorial in his house for them. And they would be given a name that is better than son or daughter, an everlasting name that shall never be cut off. What a beautiful picture that is. To the one who says to God that he will soon be forgotten, God saying, I will make a memorial for you in my house. In the place that I'm specifically preparing for you, I'm putting your name on it. To the one who is viewed as a misfit or an outcast or maybe even a slave, God's saying that he will give them a name that's better than son or daughter. A name that will never be lost, never cut off, but will be spoken by God from his own throne. Just think about some of the applications we can find to this in our context. I mean, imagine how encouraging these verses would be to, be, would be to someone who's been a product of a caste system, who's been viewed by others for his entire life as scum or as worthless, maybe having been called names like untouchable or unmentionable. But now these people can hear that they will receive and be called an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Imagine how these verses can serve as an encouragement to those who are called to a life of singleness. Marriage, it's a a good thing from God. But I would argue, unfortunately, that the church has has missed the mark by elevating marriage to such a level that singleness has almost become a blemish on someone's record. We must never forget that the Apostle Paul was single, and he commended singleness. The church needs those who are single, just as it needs those who are married. And our passage this morning reminds us that those who are single can bear much fruit for the sake of the gospel. The foreigners and the eunuchs, they were viewed as outcasts in Israel. And yet God in his word said that he gathers them to himself. And he has not finished gathering them. There are more to be gathered into his flock a flock, a people group that is comprised of the outcast and the broken and the needy, the frail and the poor. Most of who the world views as useless or invaluable, but all are extremely loved by God. We can almost think of it in our Christmas movies about you know, the, the island of misfit toys. God's gathering process is covenantal. It breaks boundaries, and lastly, it is complete. All those who God has called and who he has gathered will be brought to his holy mountain. They will be welcomed into his house of prayer where their sacrifices will be accepted by God. They will be welcomed into heaven, into his everlasting house, where we will, a place that is full of unending joy, where we will be with God and we will be given everlasting names. If you have been gathered, your status is secure. God's work is complete in your life. He's still working, but the salific work is complete.
which means that there's nothing that we can do to lose our salvation because it is not due to our work that we received it. We receive the status of secured because of the perfect and full work of Jesus Christ. In the Reformed circles, we call this preservation of the saints because there's nothing we can do to lose our salvation. We do not serve a God who leaves tasks unfinished. And he made covenants with his people that he fully intends to uphold. So friends, as we enter into 2023, may we feel like outcasts in this world. Because this world is not our home. Our citizenship is not here, but it is in heaven May we be constantly reminded that we have an everlasting house waiting for us where we will be welcomed in by God himself with people from all around the world where we will be able to see our Savior King face to face. Let's pray. Holy Father, we we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for your perfect, full work that you did on the cross so that we can look at the covenants that you've made with your people and not fear and tremble, but rejoice because we recognize that we are so loved. We've been given a name that's greater than every, an everlasting name. Help us to walk into this new year encouraged and ready to serve your kingdom better than we did this past year. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.